Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on war with James Jordan, and here he's going to be talking about the duty of self-defense. As of this recording, we just announced a big update to the Theopolis blog. As of today, all articles from the Biblical Horizons website and the lesser-known BH WordPress blog are now on the Theopolis website at the Theopolis blog. The authors with articles moved over are James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Mark Horn, and Rich Bledsoe. In addition to this huge update to our blog, all of the categories on there have also been sharpened and cleaned up. And those categories are applied to the older pieces as well. So a few categories of note. You can find a category for Biblical Horizons, which has all of that older BH material, Biblical Theology, Baptism, Sacramental Theology, How to Worship, Books, Art, Music, and of course, the books of the Bible and many, many more. So a few ways that you could now benefit even more from our blog. First, use those categories. They will really help you out in diving deep into all that we have to offer. Next, you can now easily go back on the blog pages to pieces from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. You'll see a pagination option there at the top and bottom of the page. And when you search on the blog, the categories, date, and authors are all now easily visible to you as you scroll as they were not before. So this is going to make searching much simpler for you. So we hope that you are rejoicing with us in this huge update to our website and blog. This is some of the best biblical and theological content on the internet, and we hope that you'll dive deep and be really helped by it. And of course, we want to remind you to sign up for the Theopolis app. You can use the code Theopolitan to get your first month free and to begin enjoying all of that video and audio content, as well as ebook content there on our app. So use that code Theopolitan to get your first month free, and we look forward to seeing you over there. And all of this information, of course, can be found in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving a theology of self-defense. Week we were talking about war in Scripture, and that the principles of war that we abide that abide for us are principles of defensive warfare. It's true that God enlisted Israel to carry out his divine vengeance against the Canaanites, something he didn't do in the case of Noah and the flood, showing the progressive investiture of man with authority and power and dominion. But normally we have to, uh, in the New Covenant particularly, internalize these principles, keep the Bible open before us, and seek to make applications. And we saw that the basic rule, there are two fundamental excuse me, there are two fundamental aspects of defensive warfare or perspectives. One is vengeance, the fact that we are commanded to avenge wrongs done against others, and secondly, the principle of self defense. We talked last week some about the principle of blood vengeance. Since we didn't get finished with that, we'll tie it together this morning. In Genesis chapter nine, verses five and six to get the law or principle before us again. God told Noah, and this was new, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man. From every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. This is a requirement, not an option. God commands that vengeance be taken. And we saw that under the old covenant, this principle of blood vengeance was enforced by the ground itself, which was considered virtually as a living thing, or the face of the ground, which was considered to image the face of God. To kill man, we said, is to attack and kill what man is made out of, which is the ground. And so the ground, or the earth, calls up the avenger and does not permit there to be peace or prosperity until blood is covered and taken care of. We also said, though, that in the New Covenant, the land is cleansed once and for all in Jesus Christ. And that when we look at the New Covenant in Romans chapter 12, we find that there is nothing about the, an individual family avenger being raised up to take vengeance. In fact, that seems to be forbidden. Under the Old Covenant, if you kill my brother, it was my business to go out and kill you until you ran to a city. 
Under the new covenant, it seems to be something completely different. Uh, Romans 12, verse 17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. Shows that it's a peculiar attribute of God. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him to drink, and in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But then he goes on to say, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but of evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. That is, God gave it the sword. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This establishes that God sets up the civil magistrate and that his task is to be a minister of vengeance, just as the task of the church is to be a minister of redemption. Now, how is it that we can understand this change? That was where we were last week. Why is it that in the New Covenant there is this change? And I think there are some theological um, canons which, if we bear in mind, we can come to understand why there's a shift from this avenger, land, city of refuge principle in the Old Testament to something different in the New. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, which we won't do, we'll find that God establishes the garden and he puts man in charge of guarding it, dressing it and guarding it, that is, exercising kingly and priestly dominion. After man begins his task, God brings a woman to him and puts her in the garden. Now, when Satan comes to attack and invade the garden, what he does is he attacks the woman. And that establishes by... You know, we can infer from that without any difficulty that the man in guarding the garden is also supposed to guard his wife. He was supposed to step in and protect her from the serpent, just as he was supposed to step in and protect the garden from the serpent. And thus there's a parallel between the garden and the woman. Both of them are, in a sense, environments for man, particularly the woman's body is an environment for children, for, infant, for fetuses, for small children, it's only gradually that a man, as he grows up, is able to depart from that environment. But the Bible speaks of woman as a glory of a man, that is, as an environment for him. Now that would mean, if that parallel is correct, that the land crying out for vengeance is parallel to the woman crying out for vengeance. Now this parallel between the woman and the garden runs all through the Old Testament. It's particularly seen in the Song of Solomon which we won't stop and just read all eight chapters of, but you should be familiar with it enough to realize that that's the case. Everything is said in the garden, and yet when the, when the woman is described, she is described in all this garden language. It's a walled garden, and she is said to be either a wall or a door. So the parallels are all established there. Man's relationship with the garden, his relationship with the woman, he's supposed to protect both. To attack and kill is an offense against the ground. It's also an offense against the bride. And so when we come over into the New Testament, we see the, one of the primary vengeance passages, one of the few that we can look at, in Luke chapter 18, tells us not of the ground crying out for vengeance, but of a widow crying out for vengeance. Luke 18, chapter 3, there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to the judge and saying, Avenge me, of mine adversary. Because of this parallel between the garden and the bride, we find in the book of Revelation that it's not the ground that cries out for vengeance, but the church. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, 
or verse 9 and 10, When he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls or lives of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So I think theologically that we can explain. The Bible tells us there's this shift. The question that we're asking now is can we understand the shift or are we just going to have to say, yes, well, there's a change. Uh, the ground no longer calls up Avengers because it's been cleansed once and for all. But we can see the change. There's a continuity in that the church is what cries for vengeance in her intercessory work. In the intercessory prayers of the church, the land cries out to God. It's interesting in the book of Revelation that we also see the church measuring out vengeance. The seven angels which blow trumpets and which pour out chalices of wrath are none other than the seven angels in chapters 2 and 3. They're the pastors of the churches. All this takes place in heaven, which is just a way of saying it takes place during worship service. That's really all that this, that this means. If it means more than that, then it means that the angels on earth are supposed to do the same kinds of things that the angels in heaven are doing, if these are spirit angels and not men. But the simplest interpretation, if you use Occam's razor and go with what's simplest, then the groups of seven angels in Revelation 4 through 19 are the same as the seven angels, which are the pastors of the churches, in chapters 2 and 3. However, we don't need to fight about that. The point is that in the New Covenant age, the principle of vengeance is still sound. And even though the soil itself is not defiled, there's still a sense in which if blood is shed all over the land as it is in our land, it will bring down judgment upon our land. And it's the business of the church to cry out to God for vengeance. The ground isn't going to do it anymore for us. Now it's being committed into our hands. As Galatians says, we're no longer small children. We now have to take charge of these things and make some decisions ourselves. We have to cry out to God for vengeance on behalf of the fatherless, the widow, the aborted, and all the rest. And God will answer. And we have to pour out bowls of vengeance in the church through declaration. And we have to establish Christian states which will enforce these things with the sword. We can find lots of principles in the Avenger sanctuary system in the Old Testament and apply them in various ways. The point here is that it's entirely proper for man to wield a sword, and one of the canons of what a just war would be would be that it would be a war which avenges the righteous against the attacks of the wicked. And that would have to be a characteristic of a just war. Now, I will allow for, we can take questions or discussion for a few minutes on this principle of blood vengeance, but if you don't want to go into it, we'll move on to the right of self-defense. Uh-huh. So what you're saying there, if I understand correctly, is that the, the church has a right to take up the sword. No, the church doesn't, the church and her officers don't take up the sword. Um, the church declares judgment by pouring out by blowing the trumpet and pouring out bowls of wrath. The state. It's a separate, a separate institution under Christ. If, I, you know, if we had any way to draw diagrams up here, in the Old Testament, the man, if, if you got in trouble, you had a kinsman redeemer who came and bought you back out of slavery. If somebody attacked you, you had an avenger of blood who would take vengeance. Well, that's the same person. The same person as kinsman redeemer and avenger of blood. Those are the twin works of Christ, and from them flow two institutions, the church, ministry of redemption, and state, ministry of vengeance. And they work hand in hand. The state drives men to the church, and if people are excommunicated, the church drives them back out to the state. It would be appropriate, I believe, during a ritual of excommunication to take a chalice of wine and dump it out. That was exactly what's going on in the book of Revelation. And if we wanted to call down a curse upon Dr. Lester's abortion chamber here in town, the elders up here could take chalices of wine and pour them out. That would represent what you see in the book of Revelation. 
Now, we would that would be our asking Christ to act directly. But what Christ might do is he might raise up a godly magistrate here in town to shut Lester's clinic down. See? But what we do is declarative and symbolic, and because the word is more powerful, the pen is more powerful than the sword, our declarative and symbolic actions here are actually more powerful than the sword of the magistrate. But we don't take, the church doesn't take up the sword. You can even see that in the Old Testament when the, in Numbers chapter 1, when they took a census or a muster of all the men in Israel to be in the army, it says the Levites were excluded. Levites could voluntarily fight, but they were never drafted or enlisted in the army. Because the, the scriptures and the proclamation of the gospel are a sword, are said to be a sword, and it is a weapon of war, but it's fundamentally declarative and symbolic in the church. The symbolic in the pregnant sense that the Bible has of symbols, but what we do, God really sees and honors. Wield that sword, the sword right here. Uh huh. That means we change the world. Right. All right. Let's go on to the right of self-defense, which I would say is the second principle in just warfare. And we find this in Exodus 22, verse 2, which, when people challenge you about the right to defend yourself, you need to know Exodus 22, verse 2. Turn the other cheek, they say. Well. That's right. That doesn't change the fact that we are to avenge the poor. I can. I have the right to turn my cheek, but I don't have the right to turn yours. <laughs> it's entirely proper to uh, take vengeance for those who cannot protect themselves. And the right of self-defense here also qualifies the old turn the other cheek motif. Exodus 22, verse 2, set, well, starting in verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox, four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, the ground will not call up an avenger. Anybody who thinks he's going to take vengeance is just going to have to be put to death himself. That's what this literally means. How would this work out? No blood guiltiness, no avenger. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now, I've discussed this in my book, which I imagine most of you have, and you could read two or three pages on it there. Let me summarize here by saying that what this points to is the validity of boundaries in the Bible. I own a house, and if you cross a boundary between my house and not my house, and I don't know who you are, I don't know your intention, I have the right to kill you. If it's at night, it says if the sun has risen on him. Now, in a very practical kind of way in ancient Israel, you knew everybody who lived in the town. If you could see who it was who came in the house and you knew what they were trying to do, then you didn't necessarily have the right to kill them unless they attacked you or something. But if you didn't know who they were, because it was dark at night, and they didn't have electric lights, street lights, or anything else, at night, when it was dark, it was dark, especially if there was no moon out. Then you could kill because you didn't know who it was. Now, in our, our civilization, we have to make applications of this principle, and I've suggested some in the book. The rising of the sun uh, in the Bible has a broader meaning of enabling us to make judgments and if you lived in an apartment in New York City and uh, somebody busted into your house, even if it was in the daytime, and they had a ski mask on their face and a gun in their hand, that's really taking place at night, right? And uh, so there are applications that have to be made of this principle, and we can go to the Bible and find out that the expression sun rising and so forth uh, means other things. Actually, the rising of the sun means you have power. If you can overpower the guy, you don't have the right to kill him. Jacob is like when Jacob wrestles with God and prevails, the sun rises. And Deborah says, may all of God's people be like the sun rising in its might. Somebody breaks in your house and you can capture him, then you don't have the right to kill him. But if you can't, then you do. There are a lot of things involved in this verse here when we start making application and studying out 
how we would apply it in various situations. But the bottom line is that boundaries are real. Boundaries are valid. And if an army comes in and crosses our boundary into our land, we have the right to fight that army. In fact, we have a duty and a responsibility to do so. As soon as they start killing widows and orphans or anybody else, we're supposed to take revenge and we are, have a right to defend our boundaries. Boundaries, now this is important against Anabaptists, communists, and other types. Boundaries did not come into the world because of sin. Boundaries are established in Genesis chapter 2. And there are two separate kinds of boundaries here put in the world. That's an addition to the boundary between heaven and earth. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So, you've got the land of Eden, and on the east side you've got the garden of Eden. Land of Eden, garden of Eden. Now, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden of Eden, where did they live? They lived in the land of Eden. And then when Cain left, Cain left the land of Eden for the land of Nod. But you see, there are three actual stages here in the Old Testament. Later on, you've got priests, Aaronic priests, land of Israel, and Gentiles. These boundaries keep up. And the passage in Genesis 2 continues talking about creation ordinances. A river flowed out of Eden, not out of the garden as such, but out of the land of Eden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the land of Havilah. Well, we know this passage. I've read it in here enough times. Four, uh, several different geographical locations with boundaries are presumed to exist here. So there are such things as national boundaries. And if an invader crosses the boundary, we have a duty and responsibility to kill him if he's attacking us. So a just war is a defensive war. A just war can also be a war to avenge widows, orphans, and others who are, persecute, who are being persecuted by the wicked. I say this because I think that in our isolationist commitments, we sometimes wonder if it was right for, let's say, the Western powers to step in and defend people against Nazism. Let's just assume, without debating it, how many people were actually killed by the National Socialists, that they were killing lots and lots of women and children in Nazi Germany. Was it right for the other nations round about to send an army in to put a stop to that? Well, I think you can make a case for that from the Scripture. Would it have been right for us to send an attack force in to depose Idi Amin? I think you can make a case for that from Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that in every situation we have a blank check to be the world's policeman. I'm saying a case can be made from Scripture on the basis of these principles for stepping in to defend the weak and the powerless. And that's why I think in Western civilization under Christian influence, these kinds of things have happened from time to time. I'm not interested in debating whether we should have been in Vietnam or not. But if we had some treaties and alliances with South Vietnam, and if the communist powers were moving in and destroying widows and orphans, then it can be argued we had a just right to step in there and put a stop to it. You understand? I don't want to debate the facts of these things, but to illustrate the principles. Obviously, many people thought that's what we were doing in Vietnam. Maybe we were doing that. We didn't do a very good job. As soon as we left... They started killing widows and orphans again. I'm not sure we didn't kill a few ourselves. That's not the issue. The issue is here today is the principle of blood vengeance. All right. We can entertain some discussion of these things. If you don't want to discuss it, we'll go to the first example of a battle in Scripture and look at it, what it has to say. Uh-huh. In a just war, is there any need for atonement money at the end of it? The atonement money was paid up front, not at the end of the war. Spoils were taken. Uh, we'll get to this, but the well, I might as well answer your question since you raised it. 
when, when you fought a war, you set aside some people to be the troops and other people to be in the supply. After the war was over, the booty of the war was taken and divided half between the men who didn't fight in Israel and the men who did fight. So, let's say, you know, you call for everybody to be mustered. Everybody has to come. Everybody. Then you say, any of you just about to get married, you can go home. Any of you just buy a field, you can go home. Any of you too scared to fight, you can go home. Do these people, they get half of the booty from the war is taken and divided out among all them. And half of the booty from the war is taken and given to the guys who actually fought. But before either of that is taken, a percentage is taken and given to the church, given to the upkeeper of the tabernacle. So that's what was done with the, the booty. And the head tax was taken up front when you mustered the army, then everybody had to pay the atonement money to cover for shedding blood. I don't think that's a requirement on us anymore because the blood of Christ covers for it. But you can still derive principles there that it would be legitimate. See, there's a certain legitimacy to the draft that comes out of that. But we'll get to that. Well, just so you won't all quit this class and go to the other one, uh, what the Bible presents, it, it, it is completely illegitimate to do what our nation has done, and that's require everybody in a time of peace to go in and be enrolled. That's what David did, and God cursed him for it. But when a war starts, then it's legitimate to require everybody to show up for the muster. But then you have to let everybody go home who has just gotten married, just taken a wife, or is scared to fight. So that's that there is a certain draft that takes place, but nobody's forced to fight or doesn't want to. And the draft only takes place when the war starts. There's no continuous enrollment of people, no continuous draft. In fact, that brought a curse upon Israel. Fred? The declaration of war. Who declares war? Whichever side wants to, I suppose. Does it have to be written? No. In fact, you know, if they bomb Pearl Harbor without telling you first, then, I mean, that's a de facto declaration of war. So it doesn't have to be stated at all. In fact, there's not a whole, if you're going to fight an aggressive war, there's not a whole lot of point in telling people first that you're going to attack them and declaring war. And if you're going to fight a defensive war, then they're already on your soil, so why bother to declare anything? It seems to me that certain things like that are outgrowths of European <laughs> customs connected with honor and chivalry, which don't have anything to do with the Bible. Honor and chivalry are the opposite of biblical principle. If they invade your land, you kill them all. There's no such thing as a fair fight. If somebody attacks you, you know, uh, kick them wherever you want. Uh, there's no such thing as a fair fight. Anybody who attacks you has just lost all of his rights to fair treatment, see? So that's, that's a bunch of hogwash. And uh, similarly with war, the fundamental principle of warfare, here I'm anticipating everything we're going to get into, but the fundamental principle of warfare is assassination. The way to fight the war in Vietnam is to send a death squad in to kill Ho Chi Minh. You don't kill all these 12, 13, 14-year-old children who have been given guns and sent into the South. You go kill Ho Chi Minh. And then you kill his replacement and his replacement and his replacement until they stop. See, you kill five guys instead of 500,000. Real simple. Why don't we do that? Well, because of pagan ideas of honor. Jim? Um, I, I kind of Okay. <laughs> All right, let's go on. Let's. Then you just have to get out. Flight is a perfectly legitimate way of dealing with uh, oppression. Uh -huh. The civil sword is defensive, right? Yeah. Okay, is the ecclesiastical sword defensive? Or no, I would say the ecclesiastical sword is primarily aggressive. You could, you could sort of make a paradigm out of that without, with leaving fuzzy boundaries, but you could say primarily aggressive for the church, primarily defensive for the state. Defensive and, and a vengeance. Okay, look at Genesis chapter 14. This is the first big war we have, and we're going to move now to, we're still talking about how God trains his people in war, Psalm 144. 
Blessed be the Lord who teaches my fingers to fight. Let's look at how God trained the patriarchs in warfare. And we're not going to, I mean, the whole Old Testament has to do with wars, and so we're not going to be here two years from now still tracking through the Old Testament looking how God trains his people at war. But let's do take a couple of examples. And Genesis 14 is a lot of fun, and we'll just settle down here for a while today and next week and look at the details here. Remember the context that this happens pretty much right after God gave Noah the right to take vengeance and to bear the sword. Not much of anything happens except genealogies in the Tower of Babel. And then we get to Abram. And starting in chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. There are those four rivers flowing out from a central place. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise and walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Now, understand that this didn't mean take a hike. It meant, you know, you walk around and you're sort of mapping it out. There's a symbolic dominion that takes place. You ever move to a new city? And you get the new city and after you settle down, you get in your car and you sort of drive all around town so that you begin to know the place to where it's no longer strange. Or you go to, you know, you, you go out of town and you're going to visit somebody and, and you spend the night in their house. Well, the temptation, and hopefully they let you do this, is just kind of look around the house and get to where you have some awareness of everything. It's a little bit of a way of taking dominion over a space. And that's what Abram is doing here. He's to walk around the land and take a certain kind of initial dominion over it. Now, let me just assert that over the last two chapters, Abram has built an altar at certain places. He built an altar uh, at Shechem, and then he built an altar at Bethel, and then he's going to build an altar here at Hebron. Now, these are all the key places in the land. Later on, Jacob is going to move and live in these three places. And then later on, when Joshua conquers the land, guess what the places are he conquers first? Shechem, Bethel, and Hebron. So this, what Abram does here is he maps out a conquest of the land. And when he puts an altar in a place, that establishes dominion. It's just like when the church goes into... Pango, pango, and the Lord's Supper is set up, and a missionary all by himself celebrates the Lord's Supper and eats it all by himself, and there's nobody converted yet. That's what's going on here. The place is claimed, and now everything is going to flow out. Northward, southward, eastward, and westward is going to flow out from that altar. And gradually, the natives of Pango, Pango are going to be converted, and after a couple of hundred years, Pango, Pango will be a Christian island. Okay? That's what happens, and that's what happens here. An altar is put here, an altar is put here, an altar is put here, and then that maps out the conquest of the land. The land is already conquered. To the eye of faith, the land is already conquered when these altars are put up. What happens 400 years later is just the outflow of the conquest that already has taken place here. got to believe that, or... You'll put your trust in the sword of iron instead of in the word. Now, Abram does a number of things. If you were to study, if we were to study, we'd see Abram preaches to people and he converts them. People come and make alliances with him, make covenants with him, and uh, that means conversion. It doesn't mean anything less than conversion. It means that they're going to uh, bless Abram, and those who bless Abram are blessed. I mean, that's the covenant promise, and they become united with Abram. So he does a number of things. There's one other thing to notice about these altars. It says in 13.18, Abram moved his tent southward by implication and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord, set up true worship there and evangelism. And these guys all became allies of Abram because the promise was 
I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. God just finished cursing Pharaoh because he tried to curse Abram. But uh, we'll see in just a few minutes that those who become covenantally aligned with Abram, they become blessed. They become members of his church. He's the pastor. It isn't anything less than that. You know, it's real simple. It's not weird. This didn't happen in Dune. This, you know, like this is a guy, sets up a church, starts offering sacrifices. People start coming. They already know who the true God is. They recognize that Abram is the one who's made to be their priest. He leads them in worship. They become allies of his. They possess the covenant with him. Look at verse 13 of chapter 14. It says, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living, or abiding, by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. That literally says in the margin, possessors of the covenant with Abram. What more do you want? Oh, they weren't really converted. It was just a political alliance. That's the way modern man thinks. It's not the way ancient man thought. You didn't have political alliances unless you also had religious ones first. They're all converts. But there's another thing about these altars. And altars are sanctuaries. Remember what we said last time. If I kill your brother, then you're going to be coming after me, so I've got to run and take hold of the horns of the altar. So altars are sanctuary places. They're a place of refuge. And Abram, since he represents the church, he is the pastor, he sets up these altars which are the place of refuge for people to run to and take hold of. Now, what happens in Genesis 14 when Lot is captured, Lot needs some refuge and sanctuary, so Abram goes and gets him and brings him back to this altar. It's in Hebron. Now let's begin to look at this story here. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, that's where the Tower of Babel was built, remember? Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations, or Goim. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these came, joined together, to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. It wasn't the Salt Sea at the time. That is Dead Sea. That happened later on. Twelve years they had served Chedor Laomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Chedor Laomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karanaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim. You ever wondered what happened to those guys? Now you got it. And the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Any of these names ring any bells to you? Rephaim, Zuzim, Emim, Horites? Ever heard of them before? Well, let's, let's keep looking. They came back, turned back, and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. Ever heard of Kadesh before? Conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who live in Hazazon Tamar. These are all the people that Israel is supposed to conquer later on. Right? But Israel was scared to conquer them. But these pagans, you know, they were able to do so. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. thought we already knew that. Why tell us again? That's the question you got to ask when you read this. Is that a brute fact or is it there for a reason? They came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. Dinosaurs were probably in those tar pits, right? And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they hid in them. That's really what it says. Of course, the king of Sodom is still around you know, ten verses later, he didn't fall in the tar pits and get turned into oil. You know, he hid in the tar pits. A real good picture of the estate of man. But those who survived fled to the hill country. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And then they made a big mistake. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Well... <laughs> Let's look at this. Abram was given all this land, 
Boy, what kind of a land was it? It's a land where four kings are fighting against five kings. It's already under the dominion of somebody else, Chedor, Laomer, and those allied with him. Amraphel, king of Shinar, Babylon, they run this land. Abraham is going to have to believe God and take him on faith. And look at all these conquests that take place. King of Bela, that is Zoar. Why are we told this? So that later on in the Bible we'll realize it's the same people. Well, what difference does that make? Well, we'll see. It says they came as allies around the area of the Dead Sea. And then it says that these five kings in the circle of the Jordan served Chedor Laomer for 12 years, and they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Chedor Laomer and these other guys came, and they made war, and they pretty much reestablished their conquest of this whole land of Canaan. Now, who are these kings? Amraphel, king of Shinar. Well, he and Arioch, the king of uh, Elisar, are Hamites, but they're not Canaanites. And they're dwelling in the tents of Shem, because Chedor Laomer, the king of Elam, is a Shemite, and he's obviously in charge. And so these non-Canaanite Hamites are dwelling in the tents of Shem, and they're ruling the world, which is exactly what Noah had said would happen. That those who dwell in the tents of Shem would be in charge, and those who dwell in the tents of Canaan, they would be the dogs. And so who's, who are the dogs? Who is being ruled over? Who are the slaves? Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. They're all Canaanites. And who's in charge? Who's ruling things? Chedor Laomer the Shemite. Tidal the Japhethite, king of nations, always a reference to the Japhethites. And he's dwelling in the tents of Shem because he's allied with Chedor Laomer. And these other two Hamites, but who are not Canaanites, Amraphel and Arioch, they're in charge. Now comes the revolution and the rebellion. Slaves like to rebel. Slaves are revolting. They like to revolt against those who are on top. That's how they become slaves in the first place, because they have a revolutionary rather than a submission to authority mentality. So here they are, revolting against Chedor Laomer. And Chedor Laomer comes through and he conquers the land. And notice all the people he conquers. He conquers the Rephaim. Now these were the guys that were 12 feet tall. They were giants. Verse 5, who defeats the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karanayim, which means two-horned Ashtaroth. Uh, that's Venus, Venus uh, with a crescent moon on her, on her head as a crown. Ashtaroth means Venus, it's the goddess Venus. And if you put a crown on her head, which is a crescent moon, that's the idol or goddess of this place. Ashtaroth uh, crowned with two horns. Horns speak of power, and but Ashtaroth, Venus, was not able to defend these giants against Chedor Laomer. And he also defeated, according to verse 5, the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shaveth Kirnaim, Kiriathayim, Shaveh Kiriathayim, which means a plain of the two cities. Now later on, when Israel comes up to the gates of Canaan, they see all these people and they're scared to conquer them. But they had an example here that other Shemites, Shemite named Chedor Laomer, didn't have any trouble conquering them. So this, see, the way this is written, it's written, and all these details are given to be a prophetic encouragement to Israel later on in Numbers, uh, and a prophetic encouragement which they did not take. Then in verse 6 we read that the Horites in Mount Seir were defeated. Well, if we read Deuteronomy chapter 1 and 2, if we read Numbers chapter 13, we'll find the Horites also intimidated and scared the Israelites. They shouldn't have been scared because the Horites had already been defeated by one Shemite named Chedor Laomer. should have been an encouragement, but it wasn't. Then we read about the Amalekites in verse 7 at the Well of Judgment. And Shemites here in the past were able to deal with the Amalekites, but... When Israel came to Kadesh, let's look at this verse here. It says, they turned back, verse 7, they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. Kadesh is where Israel was camped when they sent the spies into the land and where they chickened out. Now, way back here, 400 years earlier at Kadesh, 
The Amalekites and the Amorites had been defeated by Chedorlaomer, but when Israel came to Kadesh, instead of being encouraged by the word, they chickened out. So, then we come to the Canaanites here in verses 8 to 11. Not only were all these different races destroyed, but we come to the actual Canaanite kings themselves, and they also are conquered by Chedorlaomer. And they have to go and hide in the tar pits, and they have to go flee to the hills, and they lose all their goods. Now, all of this is proleptic or prophetic. It's acted out in advance of what Israel would do. But then they make their big mistake, and they take Lot. They attack the church. And now we come to the greater conquest. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now that's important. Why is Abram called a Hebrew here? This is about the only place he is. In fact, if my marginal notations are right, it's the only place. Why is Abram called Abram the Hebrew here? Well, in Genesis 10, verse 22, you always have to look back at the table of nations if you want to get these relations right. In Genesis 10, verse 22, we see that the sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The firstborn son of Shem was Elam, and Chedorlaomer was an Elamite. He's firstborn. Now, a later son is Arpachshad, and Shem was, well, excuse me, if we read the genealogy in chapter 11 and following, we find that Arpachshad is the ancestor of Abraham. Now, remember, we got a fundamental principle operating in Genesis that the firstborn son always forfeits dominion. Chedorlaomer, descendant of Elam, he's the firstborn, and Abram, the descendants of, descendant of Eber, and back to Arpachshad, he's the secondborn, or laterborn, and he's going to take dominion. So that's why we're told Abram the Hebrew here. And he's got these allies, people who are members of his church. And then in verse 14, Abram heard that his brother, or relative, Lot, had been taken captive he mustered out his trained men, born in his house, 318. Why that number is a real good question. It just happens to be the uh, numerical value of the word lot, but that couldn't be relevant. At least, that's what we think. Who knows why 318? Maybe that's just the number that happened to be there, but if it was just happened to be there, why are we told it? Why is it important? Why does the Spirit record it? I don't know. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, we don't have a map here, but Hebron is way down here, and that's where they start, and Dan is way up here, and that's where they go. The whole length of the land. So who has the real dominion over this land? Abram does. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So they pursued him way on up to Damascus, which is way on up north of Dan. And he brought back all the goods and brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So, it says, after his return from the smiting of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, we need read no further. Now we find out that in the midst of all of this, Abram the Hebrew was even more powerful than Chedorlaomer. Who has dominion over the land? Abram the Hebrew. Even more powerful than Chedorlaomer. He's able to run the whole length of the land to extend sanctuary and to avenge his kin and bring them back to Hebron. That's the point here. And if you're an Israelite and you're camped at Kadesh in Numbers 13 and you're about to move into the land and you're worried about Rephaim and Emim and Zuzim, Horites, Amorites, and Amalekites, you don't need to worry about them because not only was Chedorlaomer able, able to conquer them, but Abram was able to conquer Chedorlaomer. So we now know who the stronger ones are. Of course, Israel didn't learn from this prophecy. They didn't take it seriously. They didn't believe it. So they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's really another story. But that's why uh, there are all these parenthetical notes here in chapter 14. They turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. That is Kadesh is designed for, so that we can make the connection later on in the book of Numbers. Well... That's the meaning of this passage, and it shows that God was training his people to make war. Abram didn't interfere 
in all these other things that were going on. But when he had to, to protect his own people, to protect Lot, then he was perfectly able and capable of raising an army, taking that army out and smiting all the adversaries. We'll just finish out this chapter even though we're slightly over time. Notice that the battle takes place at night, and then after the battle is over, the sun is rising, and that's by implication. And they have a communion meal with Melchizedek, and the spoils are taken and given to Abram's allies, those in covenant with him. Those who bless Abraham, they get blessed. That was the rule. Now they fought with Abraham, and now they get to share in the spoils of the battle. But then, in chapter 15, Abram starts to get worried because after all, Chedor Laomer had a big army and Abraham only had 318 men. So after these things, and that's important, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Do not fear, I will be a shield to you. Don't worry about Chedor Laomer coming back. I'll protect you from him. See how these things are arranged. The story just continues right on. But we're out of time. Next week, we'll continue looking at how God trained his warriors and we'll probably move into a study of the particular laws which govern warfare in the Old Testament. Let's stand and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragements of your word. We ask that as we stand face to face with a pagan culture that we would be encouraged by these things and that like the godly of all ages, we would move out and take control. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.